Why? Why are millions murdered while millions of others look the other way? Why do people hijack airplanes and crash them into skyscrapers? Why is a 17-year-old girl killed in a highway accident? Why is there war and earthquake and disease and famine? Why is there so much suffering? I've lived a pretty privileged and protected life, but I know I'm just one diagnosis, one gunshot, one skidding automobile away from facing these questions with terrible intimacy. Some two and a half millennia ago, two poets, one in the Middle East, one in India, confronted the same questions. We know nothing about them, not their names, not their tribes, not their inspirations, only that they composed two religious classics, the Book of Job, and the Bhagavad Gita. The prologue of Job, the tale of a righteous man struck by tragedy, can be traced to a Sumerian legend 4,000 years old. The book itself was written sometime between 800 and 300 BCE. Scholars detect in it so many Arabic and Aramaic idiosyncrasies that some suspect it's a Hebrew translation of an earlier work now lost. Job is a painfully pious man. All his life he has played by the rules and he has prospered. The richest man in the region, he is confident that his wealth conveniently reflects his righteousness. His relationship with his God is, left, is less reverential than servile. As Maimonides observed back in the 12th century, Job is a good man, not a wise one. Then God and Satan strike a wager to test Job's devotion. Job's children are murdered, his livestock stolen, his property taken away, his body covered with boils. Three friends come to comfort him, sitting with him for a week in his agony, without saying a word. But eventually, their patience gives out. They stop listening and start lecturing, reciting the old orthodoxy. Because Job is suffering, he must somehow have sinned. To claim otherwise is to deny the orderliness of the universe. It's bad enough to be abused by God. But this well-intentioned abuse by his friends is more than Job can bear. He rebels. He hurls defiance to the heavens in words that echo down the ages. Where is justice? Why do the wicked prosper and live to a ripe old age? The poor, like herds of cattle, wander across the plains, searching all day for food. In the city, the dying groan and the wounded cry out for help. But God sees nothing wrong. God knows that I am innocent. 
If only God would hear me, state his case against me, let me read his indictment. I would justify the least of my actions. I would stand before him like a prince. Be careful what you pray for. The voice of God answers from within the whirlwind. But instead of an indictment, the voice delivers the greatest nature poem in literature, a glorious canticle at once majestic and terrifying, singing of light and darkness, fire and ice, life and death locked in passionate embrace, where beauty and violence and power and joy dance in fierce exultation. Where were you, the voice asks, when I planned the earth? What were its pillars built on? Who laid down its cornerstone while morning stars burst out singing and the angels shouted for joy? Were you there? when I wrapped the ocean in clouds and swaddled the sea in shadows? Where is the road to light? Where does darkness live? Where is the west wind released and the east wind sent down to earth? Does the rain have a father? Who has begotten the dew? Do you hunt game for the lioness and feed her ravenous cubs when they crouch in the den impatient or lie in ambush in the thicket? Who finds her prey at nightfall when her cubs are aching with hunger? Do you tell the antelope when to calve or ease her when she is in labor? Do you count the months of her fullness and know when her time has come? She kneels, she tightens her womb, she pants, she presses, she gives birth. Her little ones grow up, they leave, and never return. Here are no domesticated vegetarian lions of the peaceable kingdom promised by first Isaiah lying down with the lamb. Here, predators pounce and devour without pity. But amidst the killing, life somehow holds its own. Unstoppable and glorious. Is God's answer a rebuke? A claim that might makes right, a dismissal by the all-powerful of the complaint of the weak. Is God just saying, do not arouse the wrath of the great and powerful Oz? <laughs> if so, why should Job, in the end, be rewarded? God is not rebuking. God is teaching. 
Like a rabbi, God speaks in questions. Does the rain have a father? Who has begotten the dew? These are koan, questions that defy logic, to force the listener beyond logic into the realm of wisdom. God is not saying, what do you know? God is saying, how can you know? Some things, many things, are beyond the capacity of the human mind to grasp. To recognize its limits is not servitude, but self-knowledge. The way to wisdom, the way to understanding, the way to peace, is to give up our precious concepts, our bromides about prayer and piety, our craving for control, and embrace the power, the paradox, the fierce grace of reality as it is. Job answers a changed man. I have spoken of the unspeakable and tried to grasp the infinite. I had heard of you with my ears, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I will be quiet, comforted, that I am dust. Therefore, I will be quiet, comforted, that I am dust. That's the translation by Stephen Mitchell. The King James Version renders this verse, Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. But Mitchell, citing the original Hebrew, makes a strong case. The first verb, emas, means to reject, not despise. And there is no direct object to be found in the text. And the second verb phrase, niamti al, occurs nine other times in the book, always meaning comfort. If Mitchell is right, Job is repentant only in the literal sense of rethinking an appropriate reaction to having his mind blown. Job has seen the truth in all its wonder and mystery, and he bows to it in awe and willing surrender, not submission, for he is part of it too, the dust of humanity, humus, humility, commingling with the dust of the cosmos. After all he's been through, Job knows less but feels more. He's been transformed from pietist to mystic, from one who believes in God to one who has conversed with the ultimate. In the end, God returns Job to a vibrant, interdependent universe. Job is now in right relationship with God, who accepts his prayer, with his family who flock around him to celebrate, and with creation itself. He and his wife have ten more children, and this time 
Job notably gives a share of his estate to his daughters as well as his sons. His daughters are beautiful, the story goes, but we understand that this beauty is not personal to them, but emblematic of the beauty of Job's family life. Like the Navajo, Job now has beauty before him, beauty behind him, beauty above him, beauty all around him. He lives to see his grandchildren and great-grandchildren and dies a very old man. Like the book of Job, the Bhagavad Gita is a poem inserted into an older work, in this case, India's national epic, the Mahabharata, a war poem, eight times the length of the Iliad and Odyssey combined. In the Bhagavad Gita, a warrior prince named Arjuna stands poised to plunge into a terrible battle against the armies of his own kinsmen. Naturally, his heart is troubled, but he is fortunate in his charioteer, Krishna, the incarnation of Vishnu, the aspect of God that preserves and sustains the universe. The Bhagavad Gita relates the dialogue between the two as Arjuna seeks to understand his responsibility, his destiny, and his world. Krishna begins by explaining to Arjuna that death is an illusion. Never was there a time when I did not exist, Krishna explains. Never was there a time when I did not exist, or you, or these kings, nor will there come a time when we cease to be. The presence that pervades the universe is imperishable, unchanging, beyond both is and is not. How could it ever vanish? These bodies come to an end, but that vast embodied self, the Atman, is ageless, fathomless, eternal. Krishna reveals that the divine essence is everywhere. I am the taste in water, the light in the moon and the sun, the sound in air. I am the fragrance in the earth, the brilliance in fire, life in the living. Indeed, Krishna is inseparable from Arjuna himself and from every being. Atman, human consciousness or soul, is also Brahman, the transcendent God. I am the self, Arjuna, seated in the heart of all beings. I am the beginning and the lifespan of beings and their end as well. Arjuna listens carefully to these teachings and says he understands them, but he wants more. I want to see for myself the splendor of your ultimate form. If you think I am strong enough, worthy enough to endure it, grant me now, Lord, a vision of your vast, imperishable self. Be careful what you pray for. With innumerable mouths and eyes, faces too marvelous to stare at, dazzling ornaments, innumerable weapons, uplifted, flaming, crowned with fire, wrapped in pure light with celestial fragrance, Krishna stood forth as the infinite God, 
composed of all wonders. If a thousand suns were to rise and stand in the noon sky blazing, such brilliance would be like the fierce brilliance of that mighty self. Arjuna saw the whole universe enfolded with its countless billions of life forms gathered together in the body of the God of gods. Breathless, Arjuna exclaims, I see you, beginningless, endless, infinite in power, with a billion arms, the sun and moon, your eyeballs, the flames of your mouth lighting the universe with splendor. As moths rush into a flame and are burned in an instant, all beings plunge down your gullet and instantly are consumed. You gulp down all worlds everywhere, swallowing them in your flames, and your rays, Lord Vishnu, fill all the universe with dreadful brilliance. Who are you in this terrifying form? Grant me even a glimmer of understanding to prop up my staggering mind. My staggering mind. And Krishna answers, I am death, shatterer of world, annihilating all things. At 5.30 in the morning, July 16, 1945, on a stretch of desert near Alamogordo, New Mexico, the United States detonated the first atomic bomb. Robert Oppenheimer, the physicist supervising the Manhattan Project, had read the Bhagavad Gita in the original Sanskrit. Witnessing the explosion, this verse returned to him. I am death, shatter of world. Annihilating all things. As the world changed that morning, so is Arjuna changed by what he has seen. You are both being and non-being, he tells Krishna. And what is beyond them both, the primal God, the primordial person, the ultimate place of the universe, the knower and the known, the presence that fills all things. I am joyful, yet I quiver with dread. Show me your other form, please, the one that I know. Have mercy. Let me see you as you were before. And being merciful, Krishna resumes his human form as Arjuna's charioteer. Both Job and Arjuna experience theophany, a vision of the ultimate. They have seen without illusion the creative and destructive power of the universe. They have learned that the only authentic response to the vastness of the divine is not obedience, but awe, awe. Why is there 
So much suffering. We don't know. We can't know. We know only that life and death, creation and destruction, good and evil, merge and diverge in an eternal counterpoint of unutterable power and grace. All we can do is live our lives with courage and love. Dust we are, but stardust too, and divinity dwells in our hearts. Amen. And blessed be.